Well, we come now to our shorter catechism lessons. Our introduction to systematic theology. And last Lord's Day, we began a new section of our study. We began looking at the doctrine of the church. And just as a quick reminder of how we arrived to this point, we noted that after having spent some time on the law of God, the catechism asked whether or not it's even possible for man to obey the law perfectly. And we see that it is impossible for us, that no man since the time of Adam, born of ordinary generation, is able in this life to perfectly keep the commandments of God and that we break them daily in thought, word, and actions. And if that news wasn't bad enough, after we considered whether or not all sins were equally heinous in the sight of God, we learned that while not all sins are equally heinous, all sins, no matter how small, deserve God's wrath and curse, both in this life and in the life to come. And so, as you might naturally expect, after having explored those questions, the question then arrives, how do we escape God's wrath and curse? To which they reply that we may escape the wrath and curse of God due to us by reason of the transgression of the law. He requires of us repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ and the diligent use of the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of his mediation. Now, we've already considered the nature of faith and of repentance in our study. And so that leaves us with this third duty mentioned, the diligent use of the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of his mediation. And when we consider what those outward means are, that is when we then arrive at a doctrine of the church. Now, not all of God's outward means are exclusive to the church, but the church does play a very important and major role in that. And so what are these outward means? Question 154 answers, the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to his church the benefits of his mediation are all his ordinances, but especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for their salvation. Note first that the answer states that these outward and ordinary uh, means are communicated to his church. And so that's one way that we can arrive at the doctrine of the church. Secondly, the answer states that the outward and ordinary means are all his ordinances. And of course, within all, that word all would certainly include the establishment of his church. But then thirdly, as we'll see, while making use of the word and of prayer are certainly encouraged on a personal and private level, God has ordained the use of those things within the context of the church as well. And of course, with the sacraments, they're used exclusively within the context of the church. And so that's a third way that we can arrive at this doctrine of the church. Now, in the lessons to follow, we're going to look at each of these particular ordinances in some detail. The word, the sacraments, and prayer. We're going to spend a little time individually on each and expanding on those. But before we do that, I want to use today's lesson it's basically kind of an extension of last week to make a few more observations in general regarding outward and ordinary means. First, I want to draw your attention to the primary scripture that the Westminster divines refer to in this answer, which is Matthew 28, 
verses 19 through 20. When you turn there to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, we see that at this point in Jesus' life, he has died, he has resurrected, he has made various appearances to his disciples. And as we come to the close of the Gospel of Matthew, we read this, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, in Mark and Luke's gospel, they will go on to say, Luke, both in his gospel and the book of Acts, that Christ was then lifted up to be received into heaven, to sit at the right hand of God, to commence his rule and his reign as the exalted and glorified God-man. After having been humiliated with a lowly birth, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross, and being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. Our Lord has now entered into this new state of exaltation upon his resurrection from the dead. And he has ascended to the Father's right hand, having received the fullness of authority over all creation and over all earthly and heavenly beings. And this we call his parousia. This is Christ's rule. This is his reign. It's not something that we're waiting on happening. It's something that has, uh, has been initiated and is currently going on. This is that which was spoken of in Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. We also see this in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancients of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, says Christ. And so, verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Beloved, this is the exalted and glorified Messiah that we worship and serve. This is the Lord who prayed in John 17, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Beloved, notice very carefully, our resurrected, ascended, exalted Lord is now ruling and reigning from heaven. He has received all authority 
over all flesh and for what purpose? To give eternal life to all whom the Father had given to him, the elect. Our mediator, our king, is ruling from heaven to carry out that which he had covenanted with the Father and the Spirit to do in bringing salvation in time and space to the elect. When you read this, there isn't no, well, this may happen or wouldn't it be nice if Jesus would do this? That's not the language of Scripture. Rather, all authority over all flesh has been given to the Lord Jesus Christ to accomplish the task that God has decreed in eternity. It's a guarantee. It's not wishful thinking. And it's absolutely impossible for it not to be accomplished. And so there are a few things we can glean from this reality. One, I want you to notice that after having reminded his church of this authority, he then turns to them and says, now you therefore go. He didn't say, since I've been given all authority in heaven, just now sit around and watch me work and do nothing. No, he now commissions the church to go, founded upon the authority that he has received over all creation. Church, go and make disciples, baptize, teach all the nations what I've commanded you to do, all, all of which he has authority over. And go knowing that having received all authority over all these nations, I will be with you always as you go. I will be in your midst. And this most certainly includes what we've been hearing recently from our pastor on church discipline. Church discipline is a part of making disciples and teaching others to obey what Christ has commanded. And just as he has said here in Matthew 28 that he will always be with his church, so in Matthew 18, in the immediate context of church discipline, he says in verse 20 that he is there among them. And so we affirm without any hesitation that the Lord Jesus Christ is sovereign and has decreed a goal, a purpose for all of creation of which he will bring to pass. But this same sovereign Lord who has decreed this purpose is the same sovereign Lord who has decreed the means by which he will bring that purpose to pass. Means which involve his church in the ordinances that he has instituted. Now, beloved, I realize at this point I'm repeating a point that I made last week, but it's so important that you grasp this. I cannot stress this enough. The commissioning of the church to go and make disciples, to baptize, to teach, to discipline, that is one of the means by which the exalted Christ exercises his authority over all the earth. And so when you reject his church, when you reject the local gathering of his people who devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, when you reject these ordinary means of grace, you are rejecting Christ and you are rebelling against his authority. That's why we take it so seriously and we're devastated when someone just kind of nonchalantly walks away from the church. This is why we take serious issue with those who would profess the name of Christ but refuse to gather and submit themselves to a local church 
How in the world can you call yourself a Christian while at the same time refusing to submit to the very means by which he reveals and exercises his authority? Either Christ lied in Matthew 28 or you're deceived. And guess what? I'm going to go with the latter. Secondly, I want to say this because I can anticipate the objection. Someone may point out the words of our confession in chapter 5 that says, Well, God in his ordinary providence maketh use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. And yes, that is true. God is not restricted to ordinary means. I think, for example, of Paul's conversion. You know, Paul, when he was on his way to Damascus, he didn't make a pit stop and listen to a preacher and was converted. Something very different and radical took place. Instead, Jesus shone a bright light around him, knocked him on his rear, and thundered his voice from heaven. That's how Paul was converted. So the Lord certainly does not need us to get the job done. His eternal decree and purpose for all creation isn't going to be thwarted by me or by you or anyone else's lack of going and doing. Hence, we see this word in the catechism, ordinary. God is able to work through any means that he desires or even apart from means should he desire to do so. But the catechism is here summarizing the teaching of scripture that the ordinary Way The ordinary things that God uses to bestow his grace, to bless his people, to bring them to faith, and to grow them in that faith are the word, the sacraments, and prayer. And so we have to maintain balance. Because the word, sacraments, and prayer are the ordinary means, these are the means that we should bank on. And the fact that God may use other means doesn't give us any right to neglect his ordinary means. What God chooses to use at any given moment or in any given scenario is his prerogative. It's not ours. We're not God. And it's sinful and delusional to think that we can pry into the hidden secret counsels of God and make decisions based on that. We have to do what God clearly commands us to do in his word. And we do so with humility. We do so realizing that God has chosen to use means and to use us but yet at the same time, he is sovereign, and therefore he's the one that's calling the shots. Notice Jesus said in the Great Commission, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. We are simply not at liberty to do whatever we want or whatever we think is right. We are not at liberty to worship God however we see fit. We are not at liberty to baptize and disciple however we see fit. We certainly are not at liberty to pry into the hidden counsels of God as if that were even possible. We do what God has commanded us to do from his word. And any ordinances instituted by man which have no warrant from God's word are unacceptable. Jesus says in Matthew 15, such ordinances are in vain. Verse 6, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And in Colossians 2, 23, such ordinances not instituted by Christ are condemned as will worship. 
There Paul writes, Colossians 2, verse 20, if, if with Christ you died to the elemental principle, uh, spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And then in Micah 6.16, God severely threatens those who observe such ordinances of men. He says, For you have kept the statutes of Omri and, the, and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation, and your inhabitants a hissing, so you shall bear the scorn of my people. Beloved, these ordinances and these ordinances alone that is, these means that God has instituted and prescribed to us in his word as the king and head of his church are what we are to observe to the end of the world. This is what we've been commanded to do. We shouldn't be concerned about anything else, and we certainly cannot rebel against his authority by neglecting these ordinances that he has instituted. as I've said in the past, <clears throat> I know it can be tempting to look to other means, to look to other tactics, other ways. Especially when we see, you know, there's churches right down the road that are filled with hundreds of thousands of people. In our desire to grow, to see ourselves grow, to see our churches grow, there is this temptation to forget what our Lord has commanded us to do. And to do whatever we think we need to do to see growth, to see results. But friends, many of these same churches are an absolute train wreck. They're not what they appear. Many are filled with false professors and false teachers. And it's all a farce that is going to be exposed on the last day. Do not despise God's ordinary means that he has instituted. They may not come with all the flash and flare of a mega church, but don't dare think for a second that they do, that they do not come with power and effectiveness for those whom God has called and works with them by the power of the Holy Spirit. These are the ordinary means God has instituted for us, and we should not go looking for any other. And this is Christ's authority revealed and exercised. That's if there's any point that I want you to take home today. It's that, as we saw in Matthew 28, this is the means by which Christ reveals and exercises his authority. And so encourage one another in these means and do not neglect them, lest you invite upon yourself and others God's displeasure and wrath. And we'll close there.